This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1233. Thank you to the room with a viewers. And I'm Rob Jan, manning the helm, while Megan McHugh, our co-host, and our podcaster Kayla Larson are on well-earned shore leave. We hope you're all enjoying a safe, relaxing, geekster long weekend out there and indeed perhaps taking advantage of an extended break because of the proximity of Anzac Day on Thursday. All works out rather well. Today's episode is number 1233 and it is entitled Have Mercy. We are, of course, traditionally drawn towards thoughts of resurrection at this time of year and in zero g terms that usually results in zombies vampires and unholy medical experimentation so let's put disease back into zero g and start out with a look at a netflix television series called black summer now Season 5 of Z Nation, the bizarrely bleak asylum-produced sci-fi channel zombie apocalypse comedy drama series, that screened on US telly in the US late last year. Now, it was the final season of Z Nation. The macabrely mirthful story saw ex-National Guardsman Lieutenant Roberta Warren, played by Kalita Smith, leading a ragtag group of misfits and survivors across the post-apocalyptic disunited states. They were trying to deliver a convict named Murphy to a research facility in California, where it was hoped that his blood may hold the key to curing the zombie plague. Now, that's played out over the five seasons of the show. And viewers will know that Z Nation is a very deeply weird show that takes itself generally way less seriously than The Walking Dead. And just to pluck, pluck two plot points out of the infected air, there's an episode where a ginormous cheese wheel, and I mean one that's as big as a mining truck tyre, well, they created it for some agricultural community's annual cheese festival, of course. Well, that gets broken loose from its moorings and goes rolling along the highways and the byways of the post-apocalyptic land, squashing and picking up zombies as it goes. As far as I know, it's still rolling. In a, in a similar vein, there's a Z-NATO, yes, you'll believe zombies can fly, which is only fair given that sci-fi crossed Z-Nation over with its Sharknado franchise at one point by having Lieutenant Warren appearing in a cameo in Sharknado 3. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Anywho, before it was cancelled, Z-Nation span off an eight-episode prequel series named Black Summer. So now I've prepped that for you. Now, the uh, the first season of the... Um, <laughs> ironically, it... Uh, 
it turns into the acronym BS. <laughs> it's eight episodes long and it dropped on Netflix recently. Uh, Carl Schaefer was one of the creators of Z Nation and now he's teamed up for Black Summer with John Hyams. Schaefer also worked on Eureka, Monk and Ghost Whisperer, while Hyams is mostly known for the Universal Soldier franchise. Oh, dear. Uh, and, yes, um, John Hyams is director Peter Hyams' son, who gave us 2010 and Capricorn 1, amongst others. Black Summer refers to the period immediately after the zombie apocalypse started in what's passed into in-universe legend as the most deadly time to have survived through. We've seen many flashbacks in Z Nation, but this is the real deal, prolonged. I watched the series expecting more loopy levity, but found myself pulled into what amounted to be an often screamingly tense, practically non-stop you-are-there narrative, where overlapping character arcs were expected expertly woven together even though there was no time to linger much amidst blossoming chaos the well-judged effect was something like the more evocative bits of the resident evil movies or at least the actual games that it's based on Uh, as if that were framed in the multiple timeline style of christopher nolan's dunkirk movie there are five main characters jamie king plays rose Um, She was actually named after Jamie Summers, the bionic woman in the 1970s science fiction series of the same name. We most know Jamie King here on Zero G for playing the twins Goldie and Wendy in Sin City and its sequel, A Dame to Kill For, as well as for roles in The Spirit and My Bloody Valentine 3D. Jamie plays a mother, separated from her daughter in the initial evacuation of her neighbourhood, who finds out what lengths she will go to to be reunited with her child. I don't say prepared to go to, because nobody is prepared for this. Julius James, played by Justin Chu Carey, is a criminal, sought by authorities for reasons as yet unknown even during the apocalypse. If they do a further season of... Black Summer, I'm sure they'll get into that. He's particularly edgy in this. Uh, one of my favourite characters in Black Summer was U Sun Kyung Sun, uh, an undocumented Korean woman who has little to no English, but who nevertheless makes her presence very much felt, often frustratedly during the course of Black Summer. Christine Lee plays Sun and she had small roles in the Anne Hathaway movie Colossal and the Travellers TV series. Sal Velez Jr. plays William Velez and kind of an everyman blue-collar worker. I noticed that he's voiced a character in the Walking Dead video game, so you'd think he'd have some experience in this kind of scenario. Nah. I enjoyed not liking Kelsey Flower playing a character called Lance, a survivor who seems particularly unsuited to this situation, and yet he is very fleet of foot and fairly ruthless too. Uh, Somebody who I hadn't seen in a long time on the screen was Gwyneth Walsh, uh, who plays a character with the usually zombie movie unfriendly name of Barbara, um, a familiar name from Night of the Living Dead, I guess. Uh, Well, Gwyneth Walsh played Bator, one of the Duras sisters in Star Trek Generations and Deep Space Nine, and has an incredibly long CV in genre television shows of one sort or another. Well, 
all of these characters come together and they're all trying to get to a stadium, which is a, an evacuation point in the city in this story. There are the usual unsettling scenes of a deserted town right up front, which we soon find out to be not deserted enough because it is a zombie series. Maybe it would be better if it was just like last man on earth for the whole thing with no zombies. Well, certainly from the character's point of view. Um, does remind me actually of that, of the last man on earth television show. Uh, you don't always see everything happening in this series, which is all to the good. Sometimes some things are best left to the imagination. And at this stage, in terms of zombie procedural, all the zombies are fresh and runners, which is uh, actually quite hazardous for people, uh, who are not the usual experienced kill crew. Um, they don't have much experience in uh, killing people, let alone dispatching the undead. And uh, They haven't quite worked out the best way to do it yet, unlike The Walking Dead, where it's like, well, the zombies are hardly the most dangerous thing in their neighbourhood. Clearly these people have never seen a zombie movie or read the zombie survival guide at this stage. Uh, as usual, sometimes it's your fellow man that proves the most dangerous, but um, because this is in the, uh, the early stages of the apocalypse, uh, they're not as dangerous as the zombies are. People are not used to encountering them. And there's a lot of um, open shock and uh, not um, post-traumatic stress, they're actually involved in the traumatic stress right then and there. And you can see that it's the actors are playing this to actually show it having a real and present effect upon the people. There is one episode that comes closest to the Z Nation parody where they all take shelter in a high school or a school of some sort uh, and events unfold there. And that did feel very much like a Z Nation episode. I felt that Black Summer actually was kind of superior to the Walking Dead prequel, Fear the Walking Dead, which kind of fell into the same rhythms as the Walking Dead as it moved along. And there's some really striking imagery in this story, a stage where some of the characters get to the stadium and there's a person uh, framed against entire an entire wall of red plastic seating. But that was really nicely done. It's a full-on actioner that doesn't let up, and one of the highlights is the way the stories dovetail and overlap. Everyone has their own point of view, and you get to see it switch multiple times as they, one, uh, one um, group links up with another and, uh, or drives past them. It's one of those ones where you go, what would I do in this situation? And it's frequently answered too, not always to the good. So yeah, Black Summer on Netflix, eight episodes, a, a prequel to Z Nation. The important question you may want to ask is, do I need to have seen any Z Nation before this? Not at all. You could just jump right into this one. Uh, are there any crossovers with Z Nation? I didn't spot any myself. Um, they could easily have put some in if they wanted to, but I don't think they went there um, uh, Z Nation has had a lot of flashbacks to Black Summer in and of themselves. So, uh, you know, you might want to um, check it out before. All right, now we're going to have a track here called uh, Bury Me Alive, which is from um, the American rock group. We are the Fallen's debut album, Tear the World Down. Why am I playing this? Um, because the director, Kyle Newman, is the husband of Jamie King, who plays the character of Rose in Black Summer. And um, 
she appears in the music video. So you can check that out on wherever you like to stream your things and see her in that. So it's actually kind of a metaphor for um, uh, the end of relationships. So they've got a funeral and a burial. Well, you know, you can work it out. Possibly not play out exactly quite the same in the zombie apocalypse sense. So there you go. A little bit out of left field or Potter's field perhaps given the uh, the context. But this is We Are the Fallen. Bury me alive. Hmm. Broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 triple R FM. SOS! SOS! Mayday! Help! I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Panic mode. Get me the hell out of here! Yeah, and then we had Bury Me... Uh, well, the track was from Bury Me Alive, and it's called We Are the Fallen... And uh, I think we'll actually continue in a little bit here on Zero G with a DVD called Anna and the Apocalypse. For some reason, I keep um, calling this April and the Apocalypse. Now, this is a, a 2017, <laughs> I love the description of this, Scottish Christmas zombie musical film. It's directed by John McPhail, who's come up through the ranks of... Um, uh, doing a bit of camera work before he started directing and he did uh, worked on something called Battlestar Galactica by your command which um I'm not exactly sure if that's a television show 2008 mm, yeah well, actually I suppose it would be either that or it's some kind of um, spin-off or a video game or something anyway um this is uh his I could say this is his magnum opus because Anna in the Apocalypse is actually a or Magnum Opera, actually, is um, a pretty damn fine little piece. It's um, set uh, in t- the time coming up to a Christmas. So, yay, Christmas movie. <laughs> um, and you can tell that because at one stage the, the sets are described like Narnia threw up over Oz, which is probably quite apt of the festive decorations. So, well, you know, we're not that far off talking about it at Easter. The one feeds into the other, so to speak. Uh, yes, it is a, a zombie musical. So really we're in buffer territory, Buffy territory. Once more with feeling springs to mind when I'm listening to this and watching it. Uh, the songs and the dance numbers are... Um, uh, they're good in themselves. I think they'd work wherever you put them out on, even if you didn't have them in context to the genre. Uh, and speaking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, yes, they're, they're teens at school suffering through this zombie apocalypse. So, of course, they got extra angst on top. Would you like... Would you like uh, teen angst with that? Yes, of course. There's a dodgy headmaster, as usual, in these sorts of things. Um, and they get extra points from Zero-G for a reference to Iron Man, which they actually get right, and then um, they even speculate about what might have happened to Robert Downey Jr. during the zombie apocalypse, Shades of Zombieland and Bill Murray. Um there are some great little set pieces in this, uh, a bowling alley refuge that provides all of the opportunities for 10-pin mayhem that you would expect. Uh, there's a group of young thugs who you would expect are in their element, but um, are they? And the characters really work well together uh, without 
belying the fact that it's often necessary to have them eaten along the way. Ella Hunt plays Anna Shepherd, the Anna of the Apocalypse of the title. Uh, she's an English actress. She worked on uh, Les Mis in 2012 and a really good little um, science fiction film called Robot Overlords in 2014. Um, she's kind of playing a character who's... Um, shocked her father by saying she doesn't want to go to university straight away but she wants to go in a gap year and travelling to Australia as uh, they often do in these things. Uh, she gets a bit distracted early on. She's dancing away with her earbuds in and um, pretty much hoofs her way through the early stages of the apocalypse without noticing. I guess, you know, pre-Christmas in Scotland it can be a bit like that. <laughs> I thought the characters all interacted very well. Um, there is a bit of a teen romance in this. Well, what are you going to go for? Uh, and the songs are, are lively and uh, it is a bit of a different one for zombie apocalypses uh, because the, the musical stuff carries it through and gives you a bit of a, a cross-genre outlook. I mean, really, the, the name of the game with um, zombies now is cross-genre and this one does it very effectively and very well. It probably didn't cost a fortune to make, but um, who cares? Uh, I think they get their procedural done well enough, and as I said, it's a pretty good musical too. Uh, there is a soundtrack album um, available, uh, and uh, I think we will play. I will believe, I will believe, is the track that I am playing from Anna and the Apocalypse, uh, the original motion picture soundtrack. And it stars the uh, the actress, lead actress Ella Hunt, and Mark Benton, um, one of the other major characters in this rather charming little zombie comedy musical, <laughs> Anna and the Apocalypse is the name of the track. Hello, me little lovelies. This is your old fat auntie Jack on Radio Free Triple R. You're listening to Zero G, and if you don't listen to it closely, I'm going to jump through your speakers and rip your bloody arms off. And I will too. Rob Jan here, misbehaving at the helm of Zero G today at Triple R. I hope you're all having a, a safe and happy long geek end out there. Now, that was a track called uh, I Will Believe from the soundtrack of Anna and the Apocalypse. Two of the cast members there warbling away for all they're worth from the Zomcom musical. Now, to Star Trek Discovery, which has just dropped its season two finale episode on Netflix. Uh, an episode called Such Sweet Sorrow, directed by... Ola Tund Osunsanmi, and written by Michelle Paradise, Jenny Lumet, and Alex Kurtzman, all of whom you have heard of before in that capacity in Star Trek Disco. Uh, how much will I spoil this? Actually, given that it dropped um, Friday, uh, I am going to spoil it quite a bit. Usually I wait about a week. Uh, but in this case, since it's a season finale, um, we'll close it out. So you now have 50 seconds to reach minimum safe distance. So fitting cap to an excellent season that paid off on the time travel aspects as well as any time travel story I've seen before in the Star Trek franchise, which is saying a bit because famously Star Trek does time travel usually pretty well. There was a ginormous space battle 
in this finale that wouldn't have looked out of place in Star Wars and was one of the best I've seen in Star Trek since the epic fights in Deep Space Nine. Not that Star Trek's prime directive is to come in peace and shoot to kill, but it's satisfying that when they do want to get into a space stash that they make it an exciting one. And this one had my toes curled inside my little moon boots. In the good guy's corner, the starship's USS Enterprise and Discovery and a fleet of weaponized shuttlecraft and workable space pods. So basically they took their, uh, their small ancillary vessels that they have quite a complement of across both ships and they just made them rather much more tougher. They couldn't uh, generally, apart from the shuttlecraft, generally travel at warp speed, but they were defending one point, which is to say the USS Discovery. And so they can kind of get away with that in this. It also meant that it made it more difficult for the enemies on the side of the AI-controlled Leland meat puppet, which is to say a human being actually being manipulated by this rogue computer. They had a whole fleet of Section 31 starships which had been turned into drones by the AI. Now, this opponent is an artificial intelligence, self-aware and presumably not very happy at being forced to monitor the galactic internet for threats to the Federation's security. I mean, imagine what it's had to read and see. (laughs) And by the way, across all of the Star Trek incarnations, our heroes have battled rogue AIs, computers, cyborgs, robots and androids. Mostly they've had to pull the plug on the infernal machines and send them to Silicon Heaven. Occasionally they've been able to bring them into the fold and work with them, as with Commander Data, or indeed the overwhelmingly powerful Vija living machine from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Anyway, the rogue AI made a pretty tall enemy for our stalwarts to face, which is one way of measuring how good your heroes are, by how bad and effective their villains are. Uh, Michael Burnham and uh, a good proportion of Discovery's bridge medical and engineering crew made the sacrifice play and travelled into the far future in order to get the database aboard Discovery away from Control. Control apparently needed that, that database to upgrade itself even more. I don't know, it seemed to be doing pretty good without it. Well, we've seen the Discovery abandoned in the future in the short Trek episode Calypso. So is that how she got there? And Discovery's computer in that story, Calypso, had achieved AI status by itself and hopefully not through any machinations of control. Isn't much of a sacrifice to end up exploring the future in 900 years' time? It's like Voyager, really, isn't it? Thinking, aren't they just doing what they're supposed to do? And I don't know if it'll be sticking anyway. I mean, they've got the engineering expertise of Tilly, Jet Reno, Commander Saru, uh, Michael Burnham, Mr. Stamets, if he survives his injuries, and now he's got his partner back in sickbay, I'm sure he will. Uh, and also the genius Tilly's friend, the Zahian queen, me honey ikai halai kapu. Okay, I don't speak Zahian with an accent. Actually, the one who really did make the sacrifice play was Admiral Cornwell, who had to lock herself in a sealed room and seal it to boot with a, a, tickle, a ticking photon torpedo, which, you know, that was fairly uh, full on for her and the end of her story arc. 
I'll have to accept that the space battle made tactical sense. Um, it did seem to. Um, a little bit doubtful about all those small ships going pew, pew, pew against the actual starships deploying phasers and photon torpedoes. But then again, have to think that Section 31 was trying to capture these ships, not necessarily destroy them. Well, they were going to lose anyway, so that does make sense. And they would have, except for a, a Hail Kalis pass when uh, Chancellor Laurel arrived with a whole Klingon fleet booming in to save the day. Roaring, it is a good day to die. But uh, not our day, <laughs> obviously. And they did line up all of the time travel ducks that they'd carefully set to paddling over the course of the season. It all actually made sense to me. They did sp spend rather a lot of time saying goodbye to Spock <laughs> throughout the show uh, and the episode before that too, come to think of it. Uh, and Ethan Peck makes a very acceptable Spock too, I think. If they decided to uh, do a, um, let's see, a, say a Captain Pike series in command of the Enterprise with Ethan Peck playing his Spock to his Captain Pike, um, I think it would work quite well. Although there is form for this. Remember, back in the day when they originally did the uh, Star Trek pilot, it was with Captain Pike, uh, and the network said it was too cerebral, which is possibly because there were aliens with big brains in it. But I don't know for sure. Still, Anson Mount does a great job as Captain Pike here. Um, very self-aware of his hideous terrible future as we saw in that original pilot um uh, once it was reworked into the star trek episodes the classic original series um, the menagerie um, pike is uh, savagely burnt and crippled by um, a radiation baffle plate explosion or some other bit of techno babble uh, and ends up in a, a wheelchair where his only means of communication is to flash a light um, for yes or no. Um, I would have actually thought that the Federation would have had a bit more tech involved, but that was back in the 60s. Um, but, you know, Pike knows this fate's coming for him. He's seen it in a time travel vision. And yet he stands it like a man and gives some back. I'm very impressed by the character. And Anson Mount's performance in general, making Pike one of the best Starfleet captains we've ever seen, bar none. Although, of course, this same character, rewritten, goes on to inform the character of Captain Kirk. So it's all of a piece. Um, I think Mount obviously enjoyed having some more lines to speak of than he did have playing Black Bolt in the short-lived Inhumans television series. And, of course, Michelle Yeoh as the former Terran Emperor Giorgio from the Mirror Universe. Uh, yes, we want to see her get her own show, and we probably will, according to all the scuttlebutt. It does seem to be confirmed. I can see her working with Ash Tyler, uh, who's now in charge of Section 31 as we leave this neck of space. Uh, and it's just going to be a lot of fun as she gets to do all the things that she's not really supposed to be doing in the Federation, but under the Federation's name. Do you think she's going to try and take over the the, uh, the UFP? Wow. <laughs> of course she's going to. They did a bit of retconning in the finale of Star Trek Discovery Season 2 as well. Um, they all swear to never speak of the fate of Discovery again because they don't want uh, any possibility of a resurgent control figuring out where 
the discovery is so it can go off and get the data that it needs. And they're not going to speak of Spock's sister again outside of the family. Um, or the very handy spore drive, that, uh, that um, strange bit of uh, technology, organic technology that gives them mushroom to manoeuvre with in space. So all of that sort of hyper-classified and that will allow us to not encounter it again in the original series, which they say uh, they're going to run up to the um, the timeline of that um, in Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery, uh, which has been uh, confirmed. Now, I thought they did a really good job with this season, uh, but then I actually liked the first season too. Being a Klingon fan, I just loved all of that. I thought that was great. And uh, we will have a little track here called the main title theme from Star Trek Discovery. And um, this is uh, from Jeff Russo's original one, but this particular interpretation is by a guy called Mambo Presto. I've heard some pretty good uh, piano solo versions of this too, but this is not... We had the main title theme to Star Trek Discovery, or Disco as we like to call it. Now, actually it was great watching it um, on Friday nights. It's Friday night at the disco. Never actually done that in my entire life, in spite of living through the 1970s. And speaking of which, I because I felt a little bit more relaxed today because it's a holiday, I wanted to play a longer track here from the 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture, whose 40th anniversary it is this year. Hooray! One of the, well, the first of the Star Trek movies and one of the best, I think, directed by Robert Wise, in my humble opinion, and scored magnificently by the worthy Jerry Goldsmith, one of the finest science fiction motion picture soundtracks that have ever been composed. Now, this one actually comes from the um, uh, the the big triple album that um, uh, La La Land Records put out. Uh, so it's got um, three discs, count them three, in it, with lots of cues from the actual movie, uh, many more pieces of the theme than the original 1979 album contained. In fact, it contains also the 1979 album in total uh, and there's so much in there in here including um, early working versions of most of the tracks too but I, I thought I'd play what is one of my favorite pieces of music from the entire genre which is the Enterprise now this is a track that they play over Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk's um, trip around the Enterprise that Mr Scott takes him on when they go to see the new upgraded ship. Now, back in 1979, we'd been used to the scratchy old prints of classic Trek. So these were the the ones from the 60s where they're using um, television-grade models on the screen. And as wonderful as they were, the motion picture in 79 gave us the... Well, for me, it was a spiritual experience of seeing this mighty starship realised in all her glory on the screen for once. I know, I know, get a cabin. (laughs) Uh, For me, it was um, a transcendent experience. 
and seeing it up there, wow, just knocked me out. And the music accompanying it as well. Uh, and basically it also filled a little bit of a thematic story circle for uh, for Captain Kirk, um, Admiral Kirk. He um, was being rowed around his ship to see how it sat after five years away from it, basically, or two, sorry, two and a half years away from it. Now... That's very, very apt to Captain Horatio Hornblower, whom Captain Kirk was based upon as a character, at least partly. Uh, Gene Roddenberry very much liked the nautical uh, concept of this captain growing into his role over the course of his mission and having very similar, in some cases, respects, adventures to Hornblower. And so when Hornblower first took command of HMS Atropos, uh, he was rowed around it, which is actually not only a fun thing to do, but also a necessary thing as the captain had to work out uh, the ballasting of the ship and um, decide where provisions and so on should be stored. So it was a practical thing. And for Kirk too, it is. Um, I know some people were bored by it. <laughs> Certainly not me. I'm, it's uh, just the way I'm built. I like seeing starships in movies. So here we go, the the Enterprise sequence from Star Trek, the motion picture. Enjoy. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Thank you, Mr. Scott. And Mr. Jerry Goldsmith there with Star Trek The Motion Pictures, the Enterprise theme. Ah, a little bit of that um, shows up elsewhere in the Star Trek canon. Would that be the phaser cannon? Yes, indeed. Well, that's about it for Zero G today. As you will probably guess, next week's episode is pretty much going to be devoted to Avengers Endgame. The I can't say long-awaited because it's only been a year, but it does seem like longer. The big conclusion to the Avengers Infinity War saga. <laughs> Am I all a flutter? Yes. Am I seriously worried about the fate of my hero, Iron Man? Indeed. And, of course, his sidekick, Captain America. (laughs) Ah, well, we'll see how it all plays out next week. Oh, dear. Now, we're going to go out today with a bit of a tribute to Avengers Endgame before Kate Reid comes in at 2 o'clock, filling in for Joe Brunatic today. And I thought that the best thing to play, because we um, we have to indeed do our, uh, our, our weekly Bowie, David Bowie track, and I thought that... Um, the track that we might go with would be Heroes. And then I thought, yeah, okay, I want to do a little bit of a different riff on that. And I thought, yeah, Blondie's got a nice cover of this. So that's what we'll go with. Heroes, as done by Blondie, Eat to the Beat was the album back in the day. (laughs) So, all right, that's it for Zero G. Until next week, Avengers Reassemble. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.